Welcome back to another episode of Women in AV Poly. I'm Deirdre Mitchell McLean, and with me again is Kathleen Smith. How are you doing, Kathleen? Oh, I'm tired of shoveling snow. <laughs> right? I'm just over the snow already, and it's only November. It is, and it's only like, what, our second snow, maybe? Yeah. And now we know why Kathleen and I are both wearing hats because that's <laughs> I had to go to the store. I had to shovel the driveway first. <laughs> so that's how we ended up showing up in in hats. <laughs> we hot. This. Yes. We are so hot. Yes. We are like Paris Hilton Nicole Richie level hot. Right <laughs> See? Now. Right? <laughs> Tonight we have two guests with us and we've decided that we're going to talk a little bit about how the pandemic has been affecting us. I have from Medicine Hat, Stella Sane. Welcome, Stella. Hello. And from Edmonton, I have Rhiannon Hoyle. Hello, everyone. Good to be here. Thank you. And so let's, let's start with you, Stella. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we will get to Rhiannon. So I am a beekeeper and farmer, and we own our own small business, Sweet Pure Honey. And I'm also a stay-at-home mom. I work from home. We're a small business. And, you know, being a mom is definitely on the top of my list. And being an entrepreneur, I try to juggle both. But also being a producer, I have another hat as I'm the one who actually makes all the products and works. So on any given day, I'm a different person. <laughs> Depending which hat I'm wearing. Absolutely. And Rhiannon? Yes, so I am a mom, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, um, but I'm also a highly engaged community leader, local community leader in Edmonton, uh, Greater Edmonton and Edmonton Southwest for well over 20 years. Um, I've been volunteering with various nonprofits and on publicly elected boards. Um, I've really enjoyed my time serving the community and so boards like my Community League, Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues, I sit on Parity YEG, which is all about helping get women into elected office and to run for office and dealing with some of the challenges there. Um, and I'm also a publicly elected senator on the University of Alberta Senate. And a lot of my work uh, over the 20, past 20 years has been focused on improving the quality of life for Albertans, for Edmontonian families, for seniors, for school-aged children, um, in the inner city and also all the way into suburbia. So public service is my life's work. It's my oxygen. It's my passion. And, and I'm, I'm really, you know, energized by people and love people. So that's really at the heart of who I am. I feel so lazy now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I just feel like the worst slacker in the world. Like, well, I did a load of laundry and I shoveled some walks in. <laughs> Well, what do you do, Kathleen? Uh, you know, basically a trophy wife. <laughs> hey, that takes work. <laughs> it does. It does. Oh, God. <laughs> it takes work to be beautiful. It doesn't happen naturally. This, Yeah, this is true, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, some people do. <laughs> yeah. So we were kind of talking about how the pandemic had affected us. Um, so uh, Stella, I'm going to go straight to you with this because we were talking about, you know, running a business and, and what sort of 
happened during the pandemic and and my my children are older right my youngest is 10 my oldest turned 18 during the pandemic she wasn't really mm -hmm. happy about that um yeah, actually sorry during time. lockdown during lockdown was when she did it so yeah her fault so my kids are older but it really changed my schedule in a way that I hadn't expected it to mm -hmm. and even though like I said they're mostly you know they can they can feed themselves right they don't require that so but things changed during the pandemic things definitely change I mean first of all let's talk about the square footage of your house you know we are a family of five we live in a very small house. So there is a certain element that when I'm working, I'm always negotiating for other human beings. And we have three teenagers, 14, 16, and 18. So literally we all sort of walk around each other. Now I also work from home. I create my products from home. So I had to negotiate between all these humans eating whenever they wanted while I'm trying to work, while I'm trying to move about. So it took us some time, but we kind of came up with a schedule that seems to work for all of us. We eat at different times of the day now so that everyone comes in, eats, and then is out of my working space. I create a lot of cosmetics and pour candles and that's all done in the kitchen. But, you know, I am a homebody by nature. So I realized the pandemic for many people change their routine but for us it sort of solidified our family bond now i don't know if it's because there's so many of us or that are that, children that helps in age but it really for us it feels like an extended holiday it's like vacation still time. still still yeah we we're, we're eight months in we, and you're, you're still extended holiday walls. yeah <laughs> Okay. Just I, I'm just I'm just making sure we're all talking about the same period of time. <laughs> but to give you some background of, for this, I mean, we've all practiced meditation and gone to therapy and we all kind of worked on our own self-help. So really, once you try to heal your brain and your mind and you start focusing on mental health, a lot of it is really doing things you love in your home or out in nature. And for us, the pandemic sort of took that pressure off of having to go out and we got to focus more on what makes us happy as a family and individually. And we seem to be getting all along a lot better. That is, lovely. <laughs> that is lovely. Amazing. I don't well, I should say my husband normally is at our farm for half the year. So he's just come home to join us for the winter months. So I have to say, I don't, we don't live in the same house for half the year. So I'm sure that also is a part in, yeah. he just came home, we're in love and it's yeah. blissful. <laughs> so the honeymoon, the honeymoon season. Yeah. Four months and then ask me again. My my husband lasted two weeks out of the office trying to work from home, and I wanted to smother him in his sleep with his memory foam pillow. And I love the man. I love the man dearly. But how, how many people are under your roof, Kathleen? There's three of us. There's now, of course, because the boys are all grown and, and out. There's uh, my husband, myself, and our 13-year-old daughter. And she's the one with the severe chronic illness and immunodeficiency. So she's the main reason we've had to isolate longer than most people have. We've been in lockdown since 
March 11th. But we too live in a very small house. It's an 1100 square foot 1950s bungalow. Mm. And this summer our, our basement flooded. Uh-oh. Even though it was, it's a shitty basement. Yeah. Even though it was a shitty basement, it, it was still space. <laughs> it right. was still it matters when you have so many humans. And, and when you're living small, right? Like every, and now she, that poor child is so sick of my face. Like I'm the one who's going to get smothered in my sleep. I'm, I'm sure. Cause oh, she spends a lot of time kind of hiding out in her room right now and spending time online with, line with her friends. Cause that's the only social socialization that she's been getting since, since March. But I, you know, I, I recognize how lucky we are. We haven't lost a paycheck. My daughter yes. is still healthy. We still have a roof over our heads. We yes. can still buy food. We can still pay our bills. So you can the, still the, laugh. You're laughing. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. the little things that kind of annoy us, you know, like my basement flooded, that's, that's nothing compared to what I am seeing people struggle with. Right. So every time I start to feel a little sympathy for myself and like, oh God, it's never going to end. And I don't know how much more I can take. I, I think about just how how lucky we are and I think about how privilege is amplified right now our privilege is amplified during this pandemic because those who already were doing okay can make it through and those who were on the edge or not doing okay it is 10 times worse for them Absolutely agreed. Yeah, I mean, this is all about perspective here, right? It's really, the pandemic has really, if you've, you know, it's really forced us to have a look at uh, those philosophical questions of what is really important in life? What are, you know, what do we need in terms of the economy, in terms of supports for business, in terms of our own self-care? Um, you know, also, what do we need in terms of square footage and and, and the luxury <laughs> and the fanciest this and the next outfit and dress? And, you know, for women, maybe makeup and all of these things that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now there's this uh, almost common um, acceptance of, since, you know, so many people meet online and virtually of, you know kids running in and out of the room of maybe your room is not the most put together most beautiful interior decorated um, room and there's this acceptance I think of life that we're so normally um we, we we keep that private right oh everybody's life is perfect you know your house is just fine you may come out really dressed beautifully and yet your house is a disaster and and now that that air of um everything having to be just so I think has lessened a bit. So I think that's well, definitely um, a benefit for sure. For some people, this is the first time they haven't had control over their life, over their yes. environment, over their yeah. job. And if we're being honest, and I talked about this, I really do think that as women in business, especially entrepreneurs and mothers, it's very important to be honest about the juggling act that goes on behind the scenes. I also am a community leader in Medicine Hat and my power is with the people because they've watched my family grow up. They've watched me grow up. They've watched the honesty of what it took to get here. And at any given time, like I'm saying on any given day, I have to balance that. I have to juggle it. 
And a lot of women are just craving other honest women to come forward and give them permission to breathe and be human beings. Yeah. And this yeah. has brought us all into the human realm of perspective and not all human beings are living a privileged life. Mm-hmm. Right? Nope. I think everybody is, is, is yearning for this realness of life. Like I have, you know, right now in my home, so we've got five of us, it's a multi-generational busy family. So I've got two children in, in elementary school, my husband who actually has been working at home before even the government, the Canadian government shut things down. His company's like, we're just going to shut it down early. This doesn't look good globally. So he's been home, um, you know, sooner than most of the world was. And then I've got my mom who, I mean, I'm truly representing the sandwich generation here. So I've got an elderly mom. And to be quite honest, I've been through two years of hell and back with her health. She's been healthy her whole life. And then she needed heart valve replacement surgery. And then she got some of the side effects of that surgery and had a stroke in front of me three, you know, three months later, then, you know, three months after that ended up with heart failure. And I was living, breathing, eating, sleeping, health, the healthcare system. And, you know, so my two years have been entrenched in that. Uh, And then, you know, we're hit by a pandemic just at the end of she luckily she's stable and she's doing well but I'm a mom with children in school as well and balancing my own self-care and life and you know leading in this community and serving others and I'm completely that gives me a sense of hope and belonging and joy Uh, so for me it's truly you know it's it's taken me out of of also the stress um, and the traumas of of daily life. And so now the pandemic's hit and, you know, she is, you know, with us and kind of stuck here because she's so high risk. And so Kathleen, as you were talking about, you know, your daughter, we've also had to really hunker down and Mm -hmm. be extremely restrictive. My kids are doing online school because of that. Even the idea of a cohort family has been challenging. Uh, So, you know, then now you're talking mental health of children who should be out and playing and interacting and mental health of parents not going crazy, right? Um, Dealing, you know, with parenting and your own marriage and all of these things. So Stella, you're right. Like, you know, it's, we're juggling millions of, of, you know, perspectives and traumas and balls in the air, so to speak, like a juggler. And sometimes we don't catch them all at the right time. And that's okay. The fact that now, because it's a pandemic and people are talking about health, another thing that I've always spoken about, you go to the doctor every year, you go to the dentist, you get checkups. Why is it when I talk about mental health, when I talk about seeing a psychologist or seeing a therapist, I should be rewarded. That's me taking care of my brain and my body. And finally, the pandemic has made it acceptable for even wealthy or privileged people to now be speaking openly about mental health. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, I mean, I think it goes without no, saying that, stigma. that it goes without saying that there is a lot of uh, factors to this pandemic that are difficult for us, but I also feel as though the pandemic has brought the majority of us to a, a crucial tipping point in our lives, in, in society, where as, as horrible as the pandemic is, there is an opportunity for all of us to learn something from this, 
from this time that we're in isolation, from um, the burden that we're bearing, the strain that it has on our families, on our mental health, often on our physical health, and to carry that forward, to use the lessons we're learning to make real and lasting changes. And especially as both of you uh, have mentioned priorities, this has forced us to re-examine our priorities. Who is important in my life? Who, who am I hurting that I can't see? I know for me, it's my son can't come visit with his partner and I haven't seen my dad's in over a year now. And that's difficult, but that's also reinforced in my own life how important those familial connections are. Like I'm, I'm not missing going to West Edmonton Mall. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm, I'm not missing. I'm not missing the local pub on a Friday night. I'm, I'm missing my father's-in-law and my son, and uh, going to my next-door neighbors for a tea. You know those small things. So, I'm. I, I know it's different for every individual, and I know for me. I'm, I'm trying to focus on what I'm learning about myself during the pandemic, what I'm learning about our community at large, and um, how to support others who are struggling with it more. Yeah, That's been a, a big thing for me. How, how can I support people who uh, don't experience the level of privilege that I do? who really are in hard times, not just financially, but mentally and emotionally, and how we go about supporting them, not just through this time, but setting up lasting support systems, doing new things that will benefit the community as a whole, but specifically women and specifically those who don't enjoy the level of privilege that has helped so many of us ease our way through this. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very important. Um, You know, I was just reading an an article um, that talked about mental health of women. um, And it was a study done by the Canadian um, Addiction Mental Health Association. Uh, And it was very interesting where they studied both men and women, you know, through and they still are through the pandemic and 20 women are 27 percent more um likely or they are struggling with severe anxiety and depression and men are as well so this isn't a a, a men versus woman but it's just you know that the the responsibilities that women bear mm-hmm. uh just naturally in society and that emotional labor uh as well as when you're talking about women there's a whole amplification that happens now with women of color and you know the there's so many statistics there without going deeply into that but that's a whole other uh you know piece to this all and so Kathleen you know when you're talking about um all of those who aren't um you know don't have that privilege how do we serve how do we serve and and support um you know everyone but particularly those who are super in super vulnerable uh, positions. And so the study talked about how women of color tend to be the frontline workers or doing those more high risk jobs. Healthcare Uh, aides. Yes, healthcare aides and things like that. And then, you know, so less likely to be able to stay at home and hunker down 
or even, um, you know, and this was studied in Toronto. So this is more of the Toronto statistic. I can't speak on the Edmonton statistics. That's what this was discussing and even less likely to afford masks and PPE um, wow. and these types of things, right? So which, you know, for me is a basic human right. Like that comes under basic dignity and care and, and human rights. So, you know, they're, they're, you're right. How do we look at this? And so for somebody like me, who is, you know, I, I love to be engaged and I love to be connecting with people. So I'm an extrovert and I enjoy that. It's really, you know, had me, I've had to hunker down because of my personal family, but then it comes into the question of the challenge excites me of how now can we approach connecting with people when we can't connect with them in the usual ways? How can we serve people, listen to them, uh, allow them to be seen and heard uh, and understand their needs and then execute on that, you know, support them, bring others into it. And, and solve these problems and take action rather than sitting down passively, um, you know, doing that. And it's, it's, and I'm not decrying this. It's easy to, to donate $100 to, um, let's say, the food bank, which is a great thing. And that's a huge need. Yeah. But how can I, I think the question comes up, how can I, and I'm not talking me, I, I, the individual, how can I really make impact? Um, in community? How can I really serve? Because when we do that, we need it more than ever. We need the support more than ever. We need neighbors more than ever. We need to be less isolated. We need community in ways that that used to exist in the good old days. And I'm talking in a city like Edmonton, right? I'm sure it's, it's different in rural, but in Edmonton, you could feel so connected and so isolated at the same time. Well, I can only speak about myself and as a woman of color, I choose to serve by sharing my story and being vulnerable and putting it out there and sharing my step, sharing my process. I mentor entrepreneurs. I support women with networks. And yes, monetary makes a difference. But I Mm -hmm. think what we need to focus on as individuals is all of us have a network and a community. When you stop and you talk to that shop owner for 15 minutes and you listen to them, humans want to be listened to no matter where they are. We all have that ability and power. And every time you're communicating, every time you're listening, you're going to then meet the next person. And that's where this networking and this collaboration and this being part of a community, if you have the ability to help someone, even if it is just by listening or connecting, we need to talk about the power that comes from that and not just for people of power or privilege. I'm talking about the person you meet on the street. I'm talking about those caregivers, those workers, taking that time to stop and listen to them. So you know what regular human beings who are working. I worked in a nursing home for three months. So my husband was laid off last year. We've had four bad years farming. I found myself at 46 years old having to find an off-farm job without education. And it was appalling that none of my transferable skills, which on paper is incredible, Mm -hmm. (laughs) meant nothing to the working community. And I lasted three months because I'm old school. I'm from when if you worked hard, you worked your way up. That's not true anymore. After three months, I asked for a raise. And this is when the pandemic hit. And I was told I would have to work 1,050 hours before I would qualify for a raise. Working in a nursing home 
during a pandemic. It was, to me, it was heartbreaking. I found another job and I'm grateful for that, but the women that I met there, how they worked, and like you said, the PPE, and just they're going from four different jobs, working with the public without proper gear, and it is heartbreaking. Yeah. And you and know, we all see- of them were of color, these yeah. women that I'm yeah. seeing. I've seen it a lot in my neighborhood. I, I quite often go for walks during the day just so I can breathe. <laughs> and I see it a lot with uh, nannies in my neighborhood because I live in a predominantly white, predominantly wealthy neighborhood. I live on the, I live on the uh, bad side of the tracks, we call it. I live on the bad side of the- Bad side in the good side of town, yeah. We live in the little little 16-year-old bungalow and two blocks over is the double lot mansions Mm -hmm. looking over the river valley, right? So during the day, there are a lot of nannies out with uh, the children who live in the neighborhood while the parents are at work. And I'm, I'm struck by the fact that uh, all the nannies, all the nannies are women of color. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think about how they spend their days taking care of children in this neighborhood, very privileged children. And how does that affect what they deal with when they go home? Because well, how does, mind, many of them are not from this country. So they yeah. go home to a home in Canada, but their family is in another country. Yeah. I have several and, friends that do what you're speaking of. So they take care of other people's children to feed their family in another yeah. country. And, and I wonder for those who do have families here, what that does to them in terms of isolation. Because if during a pandemic, you're spending your day taking care of someone else's children, you're in their home, you're exposed to their children, you're exposed to the parents and whoever the parents are exposed to. And you still are concerned about taking care of your own kids and your own family and trying to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. So what is the extra measure of burden on these women already? And, and we know they're not getting paid big money. <laughs> they're, they're doing this to feed their families and to survive. And then they have to, they have to ensure they don't have large cohort, cohort groups because they've got to protect themselves and their kids. So they're even further isolated. Mm-hmm. They're Absolutely. even more isolated yep. because of that. And, and as a woman of color, I mean, I, you know, to be honest, I live in a privileged neighborhood um, as well, and it is predominantly white. Uh, and, and I see similar, similar to what you're speaking of, um, Kathleen, and I have friends who are also in other neighborhoods, those caregivers. Um, and they also are caregivers to, like me, like I said, in the sandwich generation, to their elderly parents. Um And, you know, that's now a challenge in terms, you're right, of safety uh, uh, and and health. And what does that look like? Uh, It it is a real problem. Um, And I think this comes into, I mean, you know, when you're talking about nannies and childcare, that's an industry that is, you know, has all kinds of question marks in terms of how it is uh, governed. If we don't, it's, it's very, it's not. And so, 
right? Yeah. You're talking about pay, you're talking about, um, you know, minimum wage here, you're talking about so many uh, issues. And then, you know, Stella, you brought up, you know, immigration. And I mean, I myself am an immigrant. Uh, I came here as a young teenager, uh, you know, immigrant, and my mom married um, a Canadian, my, my parents divorced and my mom remarried. So, I mean, I've lived in Canada for the majority of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's so, you know, I, I know what it's like to be a, a, a youth immigrant and then to not belong and to work through that and the cultural differences. And even though I'm, I'm from an English speaking country, I've, I was born in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean and grew up in a privileged life of very educated parents and traveled the world. And um, so, you know, it's, it's, but still, I know what it's like to not belong. I know what it's yeah. like to, to have to fit into a different culture, even though my first mother tongue is English, um, you know, and, and still it is, it's all through my life, right? So I'm, I, you know, how that adapts, what is an immigrant as you grow, as you change, even though Canada's home, I'm Canadian, I've always lived in Edmonton. Right. So, but yeah, there are perceptions of me just because of how I look um, and it may not be at all what I am. And I'm also mixed race. So that's a whole other piece there. I'm actually only half black, even though I look uh, pure black to many. And the other half of me is South Asian and white. Um, so, you know, it's it's there's so many challenges that that women of color face. And for me, of course, and when it comes to community engagement and politics and the work I do in Parity YEG, women struggle as it is to step into the political arena, yeah. into elected leadership roles. And now we've got COVID where women are stepping out of their careers because they tend to be, you know, tend to be the ones that earn less than their male counterparts if they are in a relationship. Now you've got women giving up their roles, staying at home, caring for children. How what how are we gonna ask how we can ask those same women to run for office now yeah. when they need to be at the decision making table, yeah. right? You need to have a, more than ever, we need those voices there. Uh, and not just women people of all underrepresented groups, right, need to be at those tables. So that's a whole other challenge, again, that we're seeing yeah. um, in the pandemic. Yeah, because right? we're not going to see change until all those voices are at the table. We will not 100%. see constructive, permanent change that benefits those especially who most need it unless yeah. their voices are included at the table. This is, it's something I've tried to explain to a lot of people who don't they hear the word privilege and they're immediately on their heels, they're immediately defensive, right? You don't know how hard I've worked. I come from poverty. Yes, you do. And you probably had to work very hard to get where you are and no one is diminishing that. But you exist within a system that was built by one faction of society to the benefit for that one faction of society and to the exclusion of everyone else. And that already means there's no equality and there never can be because cost. it came yeah. at a cost. And Canadians exactly. do not want to speak of the truth of the cost that this yeah. privilege of this country and economic wealth has been acquired at. And the voices that weren't part of the original formation of our society and of our structure, they are still not at the table. So when I try to speak to people about privilege and especially about women and women of color, 
and how how a, a system that was built strictly by straight white men for straight white men leaves us out. Yes. That's that is how I get them to look at privilege. It's yes, we get to play the game now. We've been invited to play the game. Yes. But everybody's already got the money. Yeah. And everybody's already made the rules and yes. we had no say in it. That's so right. don't tell me it's a fair system and we all have equal opportunity because the constitution says so when we didn't even get to say a damn word about how that system was built, what the rules were, and we're already behind on the money when we and enter the game. That would be we were speaking about all healthy people that didn't grow up with trauma or mm -hmm. abuse or in a systemic racist society yeah. so i mean there's other factors to throw in as well that would be if we're speaking of just healthy human beings mm -hmm. absolutely well and did anyone see so some of the so some of the work that's being done some of the research that's being created right now i really hope this was an opinion piece actually i meant to double check it because i knew i wanted to mention this uh, specifically actually because rhiannon you've got a multi uh, generational family. Uh, when the pandemic started, I had uh, I had extra multi generations. I had my grandmother and my mother were living here when the pandemic started. So when the four kids came home from school, um, it doesn't matter how much square footage I have. It wasn't enough. <laughs> that's that's what happened when when the kids came home, <laughs> and uh, so it was. You know it, and and it also became you know when we when we found out that schools would be going back and things like that. And my so my mother is over sixty five and she is diabetic. Um, my grandmother is ninety, so just she's already at risk. Um, but when we were talking about going back to school, I didn't want all of the kids going back. So there's there's still three that we're going to go back to to K to twelve. And I thought about it and they're like, oh, they'll be in cohorts. Well, that's fine, but I have three children. So minimally, they're going to be in contact with 60 kids that they will bring home at the end of the day. Those 60 kids, you know what? Let's pretend they only had one parent. That's 60 more people. So my kids are going to bring home minimally contact with 120 people a day. So my parents moved out. Because <laughs> they were like, well, that, I mean, okay, let's, mm -hmm. let's blame it on the pandemic, but maybe they <laughs> moved out because they were just like, whoa, there's a lot of people here. Um, but I read this, I read this Globe and Mail article and it was saying, you know, the pandemic is showing us that now is the time to start thinking more about, about multi-generational housing and things. And I thought, really? Yeah. Like, I mean, if anything, you would think that you'd want a little more separation, but, the, and they were talking about, you know, multiple bedrooms yeah. and shared and shared living space. And I thought, yeah. th really, but this came up during a pandemic, but like, I actually think good that's idea. good. Like, um, it's good. backyard, tiny homes. Well, yeah, alley homes, uh, apart that sanitized, like I'm, I'm thinking of eight, I'm thinking of eight different people sharing a kitchen and all going to do their, well, okay, which I guess eight isn't much when I think of the size of my family, but you know, <laughs> like for, 
for most people, eight people in a kitchen would be a lot. But it's also the way that we used to live. That that was the norm. And I I think it it also depends on what cultures um, you've been exposed to. I mean, before meeting my husband, I dated a lot of Middle Eastern men and a lot of Asian men, uh, specifically Chinese. And in their families, this is normal. They don't understand, you know, kids hit 18, 19, 20 and move out. Mm-hmm. The kids yeah. stay at home. And lots of times, daughter gets married and she moves her son in too. And maybe they live there with mom and dad for a while and the grandchildren live there. It, in other cultures, this isn't abnormal. But in, you know, yeah. for us, it's like, kid, you're 18, get the hell out of the house, <laughs> you know, bring well, your baby I, home so I can cuddle it, but then get the hell out of the house again. We, different cultures have always viewed multi-generational cohabitation as normal and healthy and very good for um, the mental health of the family when it's done the correct way, right? Yeah. Because the children mentally are to their grandparents yeah, well, you know, yeah. I'm seeing that in my home. So, you know, my mom is independent, has her own home and, and likes to be independent. Um, but, you know, it's something that we are seeing more uh, of social isolation for everyone. Mm. But now when you look at seniors, right, who especially, you know, in, in our society are, you know, are isolated by this ageism, they're isolated by nature, you know, it's just... As, as we all age, you know, that becomes an, an issue and, and your value to community, your value in society. And, and it's huge. Uh, I mean, there is so much value to senior citizens and to elderly. And how do we make sure that their mental health as well is preserved? And so I have friends who haven't seen their parents and their kids haven't seen their grandparents because of risks for COVID and because, you know, they're both working, my friends, so their kids have to go to school. And, And it's devastating to see. So by the same token, I look at my mom and she wishes she was, you know, she's got a home Um, in Trinidad that she likes to go to in the winter and she hasn't been able to because of COVID it just hit uh, when she was approved medically like oh you're doing well you could travel and so you know for her you know she battles between being you know out of the winter and that form of mental health but at the same time I see having the energy of my children and the energy of me and my husband around it keeps her alive and and feeling part of of society in a way in which they, you know, she may be a little bit more, a lot more, to be frank, isolated if she were in a home or even in, and I, I mean like in her own home where nobody yeah. can visit her because of physical safety of this disease and she's so high risk, or even if she were in a, in home care, right? And, and the challenges we see there. So I think you know, more than ever, that is important. And, and we have to think about how do we value our seniors and the value they bring to history and our ancestry and, and all of that. And the love and the heritage and the respect. And it's just a level of nurturing that I don't have right now because of all the different things in my brain at any given time. Grandparents have an elegance of love that is admirable you can't 
you know, when you see your children loving your parents, it's, it's, it's a beautiful. Gift. It yeah. is a gift. It is uh, a gift. I'm, I'm wondering, what do you do for self-care being, because you're, you're in a rural area, yes? So, you know, so our farm is in Saskatchewan, Porcupine Plain. I only go home when it's honey harvest to help my husband. We live in Medicine Hat, Alberta. Honestly, I walk alone. I like to take long, hot showers. I have a couple good girlfriends where we can say whatever we think and feel without judgment. So I do have some really pure outlets and I give. I do a lot of helping and mentoring and you know, I've experienced trauma in my life. I have dealt with skinheads. I've dealt with violence. If I can inspire other human beings where they are to know that when you are down and see no way out, telling my story, if showing the path that I took helps one person be able to go to sleep at night and get up and say, she believes I can do it. She can do it. And at the, you know, we've had some really hard years where we've struggled. The same people that I have inspired have also given back to me. And that's the thing that people don't talk about, this vulnerability of showing you're a human being, of putting your heart out. It comes back to you. Every human that you teach reaches out to you and tells you, you help them. And that fuels your fire brighter. Mm.